Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. My name is Scott, if we haven't met in person, and I serve here in our Inglewood Parish as part of our pastoral team, and I actually spend a lot of my time up here teaching, but I also help out in other parts of our volunteer community, and I support our staff and volunteers when we are working in this work of community together, and I have the space to do that a little bit more when other members of our teaching team are around as we had Jeremy for the last three weeks in our conversation about wealth. Many of you were around for that, which launched us into this trio of themes that we are looking at this spring, considering how wealth and habit and change can be areas of our life where we are more aware of God's nearness. And I am super excited to have Bobby here with us later in June talking to us about change by using the story of Nehemiah from the Hebrew Bible. That's going to be great. But I'm thrilled to be back up here talking about habit for the next few weeks. And more on that in a moment, because first, I've got a couple of community updates to share after a quick look back at wealth. Because I really do hope that those of you who are around the last few weeks had some reflections sparking for you. You found yourself catching sight of all the things you have and possess those things being wealth, your talent, your energy, your space, your curiosity, your stuff, your relationships, your connections. And I hope too that you were reminded that God's vision for you is to see you free from this pressure of want that we sometimes feel and the desire to accumulate and the need to compare. And also, I hope that you were reminded that when we look at the teaching of Jesus, he has a tendency to invite us to consider how true wealth is actually deeply connected to the idea and notion of wisdom, and how wise wealth calls us as God's people in the world towards places where we use our resources to re-level the playing field that many of us live in every day. And then finally, I hope that as we saw ourselves looking at the teaching of Jesus and what happens when we do that, and when you boil it down to the earliest sayings at their core, we find that hidden in the idioms of the Hebrew culture and language, Jesus seemed to have this vision for us where all that we have and all we will ever hold, these things invite us into fulfillment as we walk toward a path of generosity. And yes, of course, we have tendency to collect and to covet, to protect and to manage, which is why Jesus helps us see that true happiness can only ever be found in the ways that we share. When we give up the hope of preserving what's ours and instead choose a life marked by extending our time and our resources and our energy for the world's good, and also many times for the good of our own soul. And there is lots there, so as always, go to our website and check out our podcast if you need to, or always feel free to go over to our Commons YouTube page if you missed any of the last three weeks. There's lots of good material there. But before we jump into our teaching for today, I actually want, as I said, to give you a couple of quick updates. And the first of these is in relationship to our development initiatives here in our Inglewood Parish. 
Because Colette DeJordi, who serves on our staff, and Regina Chan, who attends and volunteers in this parish, in addition to serving on our broader commons board, these two women have been helping us work toward what the engagement with these east side neighborhoods looks like for us moving forward. And the truth is, is that as a parish, we want to develop a network of connections to other groups and agencies doing good work. This is part of how Commons wants to do work for the good of all of those in our city. And we already provide opportunities for you to be involved and to volunteer with others from our Kensington Parish. And if you are interested in those, you can head over to commons.life anytime if you want more info. But some of you may remember that during our Advent campaign in, at the end of 2018, we made contributions to two organizations that do advocacy work here locally on the east side, CARIA and the YWCA. Some of you may remember that during our spring survey here, we made a contribution to Calgary Reads for every response that we received. And you may remember that we have mentioned this Inglewood Ramsey Collaborative with several other nonprofits that Colette and Regina have helped to initiate in the last year. And what we wanted to let you know today is that the groundwork has been laid for what we hope will be some meaningful opportunities later in 2019 and moving forward, and that we will be giving you a chance to hear more and get involved in the fall after we start our church year back up with all the community programs that are going to be running here in Inglewood and Ramsey as well. And all in all, I'm so inspired by the work that Colette and Regina have already done, and I'm excited for the future ways that Commons can take on this valuable local grounded work and I want to invite you if you are interested in some of what's happening maybe some of this is news to your ears but you're curious about it I'm going to invite you to catch Regina afterwards at the Connection Center she's just going to loiter back there for a while and be a friendly face and if you're curious about some of how Commons is looking at some of these local options she'll be available for a few minutes to answer any questions that you might have she's also a passionate member of Ramsey so she can answer just about every question you have about this part of the city and I hope you'll take advantage of that if you can. And then finally, I do want to address some of the news that's coming out of our denomination the last few days. This week, the executive board of the ECC recommended for the first time since its inception in 1885, they recommended the removal of one of our sister churches because that church has been found to be out of harmony with the denomination's position on human sexuality. And as a local community that is committed to thoughtful engagement with scripture and an inclusive posture toward our LGBTQ cousins, siblings, and members, we want you to know that we stand with First Covenant Minneapolis and we pray for the covenant church abroad during this critical time of discernment. This next month that leads up to the denomination's AGM is going to be pivotal. And so we ask that you would pray that the Spirit of Christ would lead our communities in this moment. We are always open to talk. We are always willing to listen. So please reach out to me if you feel you need to do so. You can email me directly at scott.commons.church. Now, let's jump into this discussion of habit, but before we do that, Let's pause for a moment and pray. Join me now. Loving God, to you our hearts are open and our desires are known. And in this space, we ask for courage to trust that you are good. We bring each of our individual stories to this moment and 
In the beauty of community, we find that our stories are woven together in some mysterious way into a shared history. This is what it means to be part of your church. We pray that you would open our eyes to see each other, that you'd open our minds to see truth and the ways that it comes to make us new, not just in the teaching that we receive, but also in the faces that we welcome, in the bodies that we embrace. And where we might feel far from you today, we ask that you would draw near. Where the rhythms of our lives wrap us in anxiety, even as we're sitting here in this space, we pray that you would bring us peace. And where our need presses up against us, from whatever direction it comes, oh, gentle spirit, come and be our source of hope. And for our family of churches, we ask that you would give us all courage to love radically, to accept prophetically, and to reflect your great goodness with care for each other and to those who are all around us. We ask these things in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right. Habit. We're going to be thinking about and dissecting and unpacking some of the things that we do regularly and intrinsically. And I want to start off by saying that the goal of this series isn't to get you to stop eating Doritos or to begin writing thousands of words every week or to give you the tools that you need to get back to the gym as you intend or to pull back on social media as you've been intending to. These things might happen as a result of our conversation. And if I'm honest, as a person who has spent almost 35 years biting my own nails, I'm actually hoping that it's one of the benefits. But actually, my more aspirational goal in bringing this conversation to community is to get you thinking about how you live, how your ideas about faith mesh with your understanding of habit both your own and then the broader rhythms of our culture. We're actually gonna consider some of the science and it's related to our physiology and our neurology, how our bodies and our brains are wired. Yes, we're gonna do that because that's crucial to dealing with our own rhythms, both healthy and not so healthy. But more than that, what I hope you walk away with is some new perspective and a basic overview of the series is gonna go something like this. Today, we're gonna chat about regular people running marathons, how grace is personal and wholeness versus success. And then next week, we're going to chat a little bit about where habits come from. And finally, week three, we're gonna talk about habits and community how the groups we're in and contribute to shape our patterns. I hope that sounds good and engaging for you. So some of you probably have a working definition of this word. An author, Gretchen Rubin, defines habits as behaviors that are recurrent, cued by specific context, often happening without much awareness or con conscious intent, and acquired through frequent repetition. Don't write it down. We're going to come back to her, I'm sure. What we're doing is we're actually talking about the 40% of our daily lives. It's invisible architecture, as one author calls it, where scientists claim that we don't ever make clear choices, or at least we don't make actual decisions in the moment. The food we make, the way you tuck your kids in, how you touch your loved ones, what streets you drive, how you save or spend, how you think about yourself, 
how you exercise, how you change the toilet paper roll, especially those of you who do it wrong, how you organize your laundry piles, how you organize the apps on your phone. We perform these things out of habit. And there has been a wisdom tradition about these long before modern science started to unpack the intricacies of how our brain informs who we are without us thinking about it. For example, and actually it was one of the quotes you saw in our reel earlier, Greek philosopher Aristotle wrote in the fourth century BCE, we are what we repeatedly do. And excellence then is not an act, but a habit. And then psychologist William James wrote at the end of the 19th century that all our life, so far as it is in a definite form, is but a mass of habits. Now, this wisdom tradition has continued into our contemporary world where all kinds of authors and thinkers and academics produce research and content about these subconscious practices. I mean, TED Talks actually has a playlist of habits presenters, and they expound on things that we should try or how we should save our money and why exercise is harder for some of us than others. And then I also, in searching around the place, I found a website that actually gives us seven, no, 75 habit blogs and websites to follow in 2019 if you're interested. And then there's the books, where a simple Amazon search offers us titles like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People with its more than 30 million copies sold and its subsidiary versions like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens and The Seven Habits of Happy Children. I'm just waiting for their book on pets. High Performance Habits, How Extraordinary People Became That Way. Millionaire Success Habits, The Gateway to Wealth and Prosperity. Habit Stacking. 127 Small Changes to Improve Your Health, Wealth, and Happiness, or Tools of Titans, The Tactics, Routines, and Habits of Billionaires, Icons, and World-Class Performers. And in addition to these that can pop up in any search you might make, there are a smattering of others intended to help you rewire your brain and eat better and balance your hormones and get your kid to finally sleep through the night. And maybe you're like me, and just reading a list like that makes you want to make a habit of taking a nap. Or maybe you've read a few of these books and you found them helpful because you have this interest in improving yourself and you're trying to bring a new edge to your work and business. Whatever the case, what's unmistakable is how a significant portion of the energy our culture uses to understand and deal with our habits is geared specifically for optimization or optimalization, to bump our efficiency, to increase our effectiveness. And listen, I get that. If your kid isn't sleeping through the night, then figuring out sleeping habits not only increases your sanity, but it probably bumps your efficiency because you won't fall asleep while you're washing dishes. And I'm also going to be willing to admit that any source that offers 127 ways, as this one book I gave you, 127 ways to improve our health and wealth. There's got to be something in there that might help me be more resourceful and generous, right? 127 options is a lot. But I got to be honest. The more I dug and searched and asked questions for the intention of standing up here for three weeks, the more a dissonance started to grow in my mind. The way that so much of our habit conversation about, about this 40% of our life is all about trying to tap into my unused potential, 
trying to hone it and bring it under control, trying to help me be more effective. And how all of these sources are marked by the vocabulary of success. And see, this dissonance came in part because I had recently read part of columnist David Brooks' book in which he reflects on how many of us find that there's a difference between the virtues that we pursue for our resumes and our professional lives. Things like status and wealth, proficiency and notoriety. There's a difference between those things and then the things that Brooks calls our eulogy virtues. Kindness and honesty and integrity the things that we want people to say about us at the end of our life. And Brooks contends that we need to give ourselves to the deliberate cultivation of the latter for our own health. And I am still working through the implications of this for me, but what I noticed was how the majority of the commentary on habit I could find appeared to be aimed at helping us with our resumes. But it wasn't just that. The other source of the unease I felt was not being able to square a biblical imagination of habit with what I was finding. And that's a problem because as a pastor, a big part of my job is thinking about how the scriptures informs our lives and then having something to say about that. And listen, we don't have time to walk through the scriptures looking for proof texts that apply to habit. And to be honest, that's not particularly interesting. But what I can tell you is this that we find hints of habit language in places like Proverbs, where the poet says things like, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free from perversity, keep corrupt talk from your lips. And then there's warnings like, don't set foot on the path of the wicked, avoid it. Don't travel on it, turn from it and go on your own way. Or then there's the instances in the Psalms where we see things like, I have hidden your word or your law more correctly in my heart that I might not sin against you, the poet said. Or when that same person celebrates the person whose delight is in the law of God and who meditates on God's law day and night habitually. And then we can actually go all the way into the New Testament where we see James writing to some of the first followers of Jesus. And right after telling them that they need to be careful with what they say to each other, James writes this, who who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But what's interesting is that even these kinds of examples reveal that the scriptures have a tendency to, even when they are giving us good advice for how to address this 40% of our lives and hinting at the patterns we should avoid, the scriptures tend to be super didactic and prescriptive. Be wise, be better, stop that. And often it can feel like there isn't this clean line between the ancient wisdom and the ways that it informs how we live. In fact, some of us might have had the experience where the recommendations for behavior that we get from scripture seem to point us towards this unattainable standard, where we're left holding our irregular rhythms, our sporadic attempts to be better, combined with our awareness of the things in us that we know should change, and maybe we've tried and not been able to. And we end up with no clue of how to bridge to the wise and the integrated people that we so often compare ourselves to. Which means, I think, most of us here in the room probably find ourselves caught in the middle. 
somewhere between the lofty models that the scripture offers us and the incessant barrage of our culture telling us that we're just one simple step away from the health and the prosperity and the efficiency we deserve. We're caught between those two things and where we actually are. And our lives can end up looking like the people in these photos from last year's Chicago Marathon Expo, where organizers set up a treadmill that participants could hop on and then attempt to maintain the pace of world record holder Iliad Kipchoge, covering 200 meters every 34 seconds, which if you want to know how fast that is, it's faster than you want to run. And this led to some hilarious and sometimes painful results. It's a brilliant video. Just go and find it after church if you want to check it out. I mean, regular people were just jumping onto this treadmill in their street clothes and their sandals, and some were actually able to keep the pace, and some barely survived, and others were actually lost their balance and they got shot off the end of this thing. It's, it's wonderful, actually. The point being, that an average person can't just replicate the pace and the endurance of a world-class athlete. Someone like Kipchoge, who has taken years to reach that point. And Kipchoge is actually quoted as saying, to be successful in sport is not a chance, it's a choice. If you wanna be successful, you need to choose. Just straight out of a successful habit book, right? which is this picture of how a conversation about habits swirls around us, goading us onto this treadmill of effort and endurance we often cannot sustain and holding us to a standard of expertise and self-mastery that we can't replicate. Not because every person hopping onto that treadmill in Chicago wouldn't have been healthier if they started trying to be more fit and not because we shouldn't aspire to risking and using our lives for meaningful things, trying changes that make that work possible in us, but because while there are certainly axioms for physical and mental health and wise financial management, for how to be honest and hardworking, there is not, as Gretchen Rubin's research on habit points out, a one-size-fits-all pattern for us all to follow. And that might seem obvious and self-evident to some of you, which probably just means that you could teach us something from the habits and rhythms of your own life and experience. But what I can almost guarantee is that all of us have had the experience of having something we wish we were doing more often and something we wanted to do less. And after considerable effort and limited results, we may have abandoned the project, not because it wasn't right to attempt in the first place, but maybe because our goal in pursuing that habit was something that looked like someone else's success instead of our own wholeness. And before we come back to it at the end today, I want us to start from there challenging you to think about the habits of your life and to ground your expectations in your own story. In part because researchers have found so much variety in how people pursue healthy life and how people build meaningful organizations and how people achieve long-term goals and how people overcome their vices. But also because I know that some of us here today have not given ourselves enough grace to flourish on. Grace 
to be at the point in your career where you are. And grace to be living with the physical limitations that you have right now. And grace to be a parent to demanding children. And grace to be okay with the small margins for creativity that you feel you have. Or small margins for the kinds of relationships you really want. Or then maybe grace just to step into this season of new energy and new opportunity that you feel you've come close to. And why? Why is that so necessary? Because wherever you are with God is where God is working with you to build a life. And yes, of course, there are pieces of wisdom related to habit building that are universal. There are hundreds of books that show us that. There's steps you can take, there's proven paths you can try, where someone else's experience or their suggestion could actually help you find rootedness in your soul. But I suspect that for most of us, the critical truth that we need to grasp and hold to most fiercely is that grace is profoundly personal. And that the strength that you have and the hope that you need to sustain and shift in all your habits, the divine offers that to you right now where you are. Now, I've already alluded to a little bit about how I think. Sometimes there's a disconnection between the patterns of our life and how the scriptures and ancient wisdom tend to address our experience. But the truth is that I think that the story of God in Christ has this capacity to change the way we think about our patterns. And for me, these things come together in a familiar story from the life of Jesus, found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. And we actually looked at this passage in our parable series earlier this year. And in this episode, a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and asks, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is a big question. And I kind of imagine it playing out like when a child asks where babies come from in a, wor in, a, in a room full of adults, you know, and the air just sort of sucks out of the room because everybody knows that the words that are about to be used really matter. And you can almost see and sense this in the story. Listen, this lawyer comes and he is asking this big question and he's asking it in the biggest sense. He's wondering how to face the future, how to find the kind of life that God imagines as being best and how to pursue wholeness more than success, you might say. And I love how Jesus responds because he asks this man, well, what does our tradition say? How does the long story of the Hebrew people and their encounter with the divine tell you how to live? And Jesus doesn't ask this just so that he gets a stock answer or some rule or some habit for successful living. No, Jesus asks this man, how do you read the story? Where does this high and lofty wisdom from the past intersect with everyday life for you, Jesus asks. And the man pulls from Torah. He goes to the great commands in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus, and he says to Jesus, well, I think that I should love the Lord, my God, with all my heart and with all my soul, with all my strength and with all my mind, and love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus kind of just gives him a thumbs up and then says this great one-liner. He says, great, do this and you will live. 
which for me reinforces what's both infuriating and hopeful in how the scriptures shape how we think about our habits. Because can, can you not hear the gears churning in this guy's mind? Working with the question that you must have asked yourself at some point, do, do this, but how? How do I get better? And how do I do the good things? And how do I drop or avoid the toxic ones? And see, on the surface, Jesus' answer appears to be following the biblical model of commands and prescriptions. We're just told what to do. And it can feel like another checklist, another opportunity to discover the gap between my habits and the life I'm expected to live. I'm just a regular guy trying to run a record-breaking marathon. When in fact, a closer look at the vocabulary here offers us a different picture of what Jesus is getting at. Because the encouragement to love God with our heart, or cardia in Greek, this is referring to the emotional center of our being. The word for soul, psyche, it invites us to use our entire consciousness the word for strength here in this passage, it refers to our bodies, but in a certain rabbinic tradition, it also refers to all of our physical resources, all that we have. And then we're invited to love God with our minds, with our intelligence and our planning abilities and our strategy. And when we remember that this prayer and these words and these terms is part of a broader prayer called the Shema. And this is a prayer that our Jewish cousins still say twice a day habitually. When we realize that, we realize that the center of the divine imagination for the things that we do repeatedly is an invitation to be whole, bringing all these parts of ourselves to the work of being a person. And where, even as this lawyer replies and we learn that he's given the right answer, Jesus' response of do this and you will live shouldn't be heard as a prescriptive command to go and do all the things. Because if we're honest, that's sometimes how we hear it. We hear it as an indictment of the ways that we fall short. We hear it as an indictment of the ways that we have failed in our attempt to be a better version or an earlier version of ourselves, of the ways that we sometimes speak too harshly, the ways that we're lazy and we lack self-discipline, the ways that our vices warp us and wrap us in cycles of denial and dishonesty. We hear it as an indictment of all the ways that we pursue patterns that we hope will bring us success leaving our souls and those we love alone. When in fact, it's not a command at all that Jesus has given. But instead, Jesus is inviting this man to enter into a conversation as he invites us to enter the conversation as we read, where we ask the divine how to live. And the response comes back, be whole meaning that any time we cultivate habits of rest and pleasure and work and creativity and discernment and grace and forgiveness and self-control and being generous, patterns that are good for us, 
Or maybe like the lawyer in the story, we're encouraged to love our neighbors well and we start the practice of seeing ourselves in every person we encounter, which are the patterns that are good for all. It's then, with each repeated action, great or small, that we step a little closer to the kind of eternal, flourishing life that Jesus knew was possible for the lawyer in the story the same life that he knows is best for each of us too. So, may you sense an invitation to new rhythms, to engage the work of leaving harmful ones behind, perhaps. And may you enter this week knowing that voices of wisdom to help you in this work, Amazon's full of them, these voices are everywhere, but I also hope that you'll find the grace that's present to you in the fabric of your life right now. May you have courage to think of habits for the sake of your wholeness and tuning out the voices that call you up onto the treadmill of success. And when you find yourself asking in some part of your life, but how do I do this? May you sense the Spirit's gentle encouragement to practice the things that bring all that you are together, trusting that as you learn to do this, you'll find new life. Let's pray. Loving God, we are brought to this moment by the invitation of the text and by the questions that our living raises for us. We find ourselves in a part of our story. Some of us may be in a place where we feel disillusioned. Some of us might feel really settled. We come with all these varying narratives to a place where we need your spirit to guide us as we think about the things that we do without even thinking. And in the text today for us is this invitation to consider that the wisdom for how to live that comes to us through your story is one in which we're invited not to think about how to be our best self or our most successful self or our most efficient version, but this invitation to bring all that we are to the life that we're in the middle of right now. And I ask that you would give us courage to do this well. And in the steps we'll take this afternoon and the days to come this week, would you give us Grace to see your nearness at work in all the places that we live. Encouraged to live with you. In the name of Christ, amen.